If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have one here that you can use. Hopefully you can find it in a seat back in front of you. And you'll find the book of Colossians on page 638, I think. Is that right? Okay. Page 638, you'll find Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let me begin first by reading our text for today. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. This is the Word of God. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, the Apostle Paul calls the Colossians' attention to their relatively new reconciled relationship to God made possible through Jesus Christ. That's a summary of what we find in these few verses. Paul is calling the Colossians' attention to their relatively new reconciled relationship to God which has been made possible through Jesus Christ. Before I preach this sermon, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we ask that You would make the preaching of Your Word effective and pray that it would be helpful for everyone here and that You would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1. And in the six verses we looked at there, Paul gave the Colossians a twofold basis for the preeminence of Christ, you might remember. So he gave the Colossians two reasons why Jesus Christ is worthy of first place in your heart and in my heart. That's what it means to be preeminent. First place above all others. And Christ should be preeminent in your heart because He is preeminent. He gave two reasons. He is preeminent over creation and He is preeminent over redemption. So, Jesus is, Christians believe, the Lord of creation and He is the Lord of redemption. That's what we looked at in those six verses. And because He is the Lord of creation, and the Lord of redemption, He is the preeminent One in the universe. And He is the One that is worthy of then first place in your heart and, and in my heart. In verses 19-20, through 20, Paul said this. I'm quoting verses 19-20. through 20, For in Him, in Jesus... In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So God, through Jesus Christ, reconciles to Himself all things on earth and in heaven. And this includes the Colossian Christians. And so our three verses today, Paul is going to focus on the Colossians and their personal experience of being reconciled to God. So he makes this general statement in verses 19 through 20. Listen, Jesus Christ is in first place. And he has reconciled to God all things on earth and in heaven. And now what he's saying in this verse is, is that includes you. He's personalizing it to those whom he's writing to. That includes you, Colossian Christians. You have been personally reconciled to God. So it's like he's zooming in now and saying, let's not just speak in big, systematic, theological terms about reconciliation to God. He zooms in and says, you, Colossians, this includes you. Jesus Christ has reconciled you to God. Listen, there is nothing unordinary or unusual about the reconciliation of these Colossian Christians to God. In other words, they were reconciled to God in His usual, ordinary way. Which means that what Paul says to and of the Colossians is true to and of us. So what Paul says about the Colossians' personal reconciliation to God is true, Christians, today. It is true of your personal reconciliation to God. So when we read these verses, Paul is, if you will, inviting you to consider your own reconciliation to God. Right? So what is true of the Colossians is true of you. Every sin you have ever committed and every sin you will ever commit is forgiven and you are reconciled to the Almighty God by the death of Jesus Christ. Christian, that is true for you right now. Every sin you have ever committed and every sin you ever will commit has been forgiven by God the Father Almighty through the death of Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled to God. Verse 21. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Colossians, Paul is saying, this is who you were. Colossians, this is who you were. Christians, this is who you were, right? Because we're gonna we're invited here. This is us too. So Colossians, verse 21, this is who you were. Okay, Christians gathered here, 2014, Veritas Church, this Sunday morning. This is also true for you. This is who you were. First, Paul says, you once were alienated from God. Are you a Christian today? Well, you weren't always a Christian. 
You weren't born a Christian. You were once alienated from God. You were once, to use another word, estranged from God. Peter O'Brien describes this as you were once continuously and persistently out of harmony with God. You were, Ephesians 2.12 says, strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without God, Ephesians 2 says. And therefore, you were, Ephesians 2 says, without hope. Strangers to God and His promises. You were without God and you had no hope. You were, Ephesians 4.18 says, darkened in your understanding. And the way Paul puts it to the Ephesians is you were alienated from the life of God. So here, alienated from God in Colossians to the Ephesians, he says you were alienated from the life of God. And Ephesians 4 also says why? Why were we alienated from the life of God? And there Paul says because of your former ignorance and hardness of heart. You were estranged from God. You were alienated from God. You were darkened in your understanding. You didn't think well. You didn't see well. And there was hardness in your heart. Estranged. Well, estranged means no longer close together. Right? If you're estranged from someone, it means you are no longer close. Estrangement implies previous what? Closeness. Reconciliation implies previous closeness because reconciliation is being brought back. So you were, you were close at one time. So we might say of a divorced couple that there used to be right mutual affection and adoration, but now they are estranged. There was a day maybe when she looked out the window waiting for him to come home. And she no longer looks out the window waiting for him to come home. Why? They're estranged. They're no longer close. So mankind was not always estranged from God. That's what we're getting at. Mankind was not always alienated from God. There wasn't always a barrier between man and God. We find this where? In the first two chapters. Some of you remember our study through the book of Genesis. It didn't last too long. But we do find it in the very first two chapters of Genesis where Adam and Eve are in paradise. That is pre-alienation. Pre-estranged. Okay, we're estranged now. When were we not estranged? We're alienated now. When were we not alienated? We need to be reconciled. Well, when were we ever close? Genesis 1 and 2. When Adam and Eve were in paradise. And let me ask you a question. Sort of a trick question. Something to think about. What made it paradise? Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Adam and Eve in paradise. We would say maybe Christians again in the new heavens and the new earth will be in paradise. But what? think about that. In Genesis 1 and 2, what made it paradise? Beaches? Is that what made it paradise? Is that what you think of when you think of paradise? That's what I think of. 
Think of white sand beaches. Was it fruit? Ah, this is really good fruit on these trees. This is paradise. No rules? That's why it was paradise. No rules. I mean, one, one rule. Right? A garden of yes with a tree of no in the middle. I mean, so one no and a lot of yes. Maybe that's what made it paradise. No clothes? Just saying. No employer? What was it that made it paradise? Well, it's none of those things. It was paradise because God was there and sin was not. That's why it was paradise. It was paradise because, if you remember, in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve walked with God. It was paradise because there were no barriers between man and God. And so man was the happiest he has ever been because he was being who he was made to be, an unhindered worshiper of God. That's paradise. God was there. Sin was not. As man being who he was created to be, a worshiper of God, not a worshiper of God like us, an unhindered worshiper of God, no barriers between he and God, no alienation, no estrangement, but you know what happened. Right? Two chapters. You know what happened. They listened to the deceitful words of Satan. They did, as verse 21 talks about here, they did evil. They rejected God and His Word. They exchanged it for a lie. They violated His only law, His one rule. A law that was in place for their good. A restriction in place to protect them actually and to preserve their communion with God and to prevent estrangement. That's what the rule was there for. But they broke that rule. They turned their backs on God. And here's what the Bible says about that moment. In that moment when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, man was changed. Changed. Fundamentally, foundationally, man was changed. And a barrier was set at that point. The universe didn't just go on, right? Universe as usual. It was the cataclysmic event. The cataclysmic event. And a barrier was set through sin between man and God. Man became estranged from God. Right? This is going to explain the background of where we are here. Man was then estranged from God, alienated from God, and we have been estranged ever since. In Adam, all mankind has been alienated from God, Romans 5 tells us. In Adam, all mankind has been alienated from God. When Adam sinned, his very nature changed and he bore children like him and they bore children like him and you were born like him. That's why the Bible can say things like we were born in iniquity. Because we're like our father Adam. His nature was changed. And he bore children like him. And so we are alienated and estranged from God. From birth, we're alienated and estranged from God. 
So that all happened in Genesis chapter 3, and we see an example of the effects of this sin, this barrier, this alienation from God in the very next chapter. You remember Genesis chapter 4? Two sons of Adam and Eve. We see that this sinful nature is passed on. Two sons, two boys, two brothers, Cain and Abel, and the evil in Cain's heart led him to do what? Do you remember? To murder his brother Abel. And then a few chapters later, by Genesis chapter 6, God declares this about mankind. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a very countercultural verse, isn't it? Today. You hear phrases like, follow your heart. That was not coined from Scripture. The heart, the scripture says that the heart is deceitful. How deceitful? Jeremiah. Above all things. He says the heart is desperately sick. And who can understand it? And yet we're encouraged to follow our heart. Well, God wouldn't encourage us to follow our heart. And then we see this reality of the alienation, the estrangement from God described further in this verse, 21 of Colossians 1. Paul explains us in our state of alienation what we think and what we do has been affected. What does he say? Two things. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Christian, this is who you once were. You were alienated from God. Let's explain that further, Christian, Paul says. You were hostile in your mind. Hostile to God. And you were doing evil deeds. Hostile in mind. What alienates the not-Christian from God? What alienated the Colossians from God? They were hostile in mind. That means they hated God. That will alienate you from somebody. They hated God. The Colossians wanted God dead. This is what it means when you and I, before we were Christians, were hostile in mind. We wouldn't want to sugarcoat it. It means we hated God. It means that we wanted God dead. We wanted to be our own king. Our own ruler. We wanted to usurp His throne. We wanted to define our own terms in our own ways. We didn't want to be subject to Him. We didn't want to be in submission to Him. We didn't want to listen to Him. We wanted to be our own God. We wanted to be rid of God. And this is, in fact, what I think an atheist tries to do. He has tried to murder God in his mind. Well, there is no God. Titus 1.15 says that our minds and consciences are defiled. Hostile in mind. There is Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, madness in our hearts. And because of this hostility of mind and madness of hearts, we do, what does the rest of verse 21 say? We do evil deeds. You're alienated from God, hostile in mind, so it started within, 
doing evil deeds. This is what Paul is saying. This is who you were. You once were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So the deeds that you did that were evil, they started within. Why Galatians 5.19 calls them works of the flesh. So people are outwardly evil because they are inwardly hostile to God. That's what we're learning. People are outwardly evil because they are inwardly hostile to God. People sin because they are sinners. People aren't sinners because they sin. We sin because we are sinners. According to Romans 3.10 and following, we were never seeking after God. We were, according to Romans 1.18, suppressing the truth. And John said in his third chapter that our works were evil, like Paul says here in our text, and our works were evil because we loved the darkness rather than the light. So Christian, you were once estranged from God. You were hostile in your thoughts toward Him and you did evil deeds. Quite simply put by Paul, isn't it? Not very complicated. Did you know this? Did you care that you were hostile in your mind and your thoughts toward God? There was madness in your heart that you were doing evil deeds Maybe today you're estranged from God and you're alienated from God. Do you know this today? Do you care about this today? For the Christian, there came a point where you cared very much about this. And you cried out, probably like David does in Psalm 51. David was aware of his former sin, his remaining sin, in the first ten verses of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew his sinfulness before God. Listen to this confession of David. It may shame some of us with our token apologies to God. God, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Thanks for grace. Bye. Oh, I did it again. Well, no one's perfect, right? Someday. Someday. Thanks for grace. Listen to how David was pierced by his sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is proper confession before God. 
from a Christian. Now, I know that this doctrine of our sinfulness sounds terrible today. And I know that some of you might even be thinking, what kind of self-deprecating teaching is this? I know it can sound repulsive to the modern ear. I can still remember it sounding offensive to me. I can still feel that and remember that. This teaching on my sinful state before God being offensive. For me, it went from being offensive to dramatic to plausible to unfortunately accurate. When I thought about it this week, this teaching of my sinfulness was very offensive at first. Then it seemed dramatic. Not that bad. Really? It just seems awfully dramatic. I'm not Hitler for crying out loud. Then it went to plausible in my mind. Well, maybe there is some truth to this. And then finally I arrived where I am today and that's it's unfortunately Spot on. Accurate. Isn't that what David says in Psalm 51 when he says, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What's he saying? You are right, God, in what you say about me and who I am and my identity as a sinner and as a God-hater. I'm in real trouble before you, God. And the Christian knows that this is who we once were. It is essential for you and I to get this. Especially for those of you who might not be Christians, it is really essential for you to get this if you'll ever get the Gospel. It's necessary for you to get the bad news to get the good news. I know that me saying it over and over doesn't help necessarily, but I would hope and pray that maybe a seed is planted. And perhaps one day, when you're faced with your sin, And before some empty world word diverts you, you'll remember these words and you'll feel rotten for a minute or two and mercy won't sound like a joke anymore. That'd be my prayer. That it stick with you. Come a moment where you will be faced with the horror that is your sin and before some pithy worldly statement encourages you falsely or diverts your attention, maybe you'll remember this and you'll feel rotten. That would be my prayer. And that you'll feel rotten so that when you hear of God's mercy, it won't seem like a big joke to you. But it'll seem like something you really need. That's verse 21. Paul is saying this is who you were. So, okay, Colossians, okay, Christian, this is who you were. And now, verse 22, this is who you are. Both of these are true. This is who you were. Now, this is who you are. That was then. This is now. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He has now reconciled. 
What does that mean? It means the Colossians are no longer estranged. You're close with God now. You've been brought near to God. They have been brought back to God, and that is the good news. That's the good news. That is the Gospel. What does the word Gospel literally mean? Good news. So if someone asks you, what is the Gospel? You need to hear, what is this good news? And that should help you to define and answer that question. What is the Gospel? Okay, what is the good news? Well, the good news is, is not... Here's some false ideas that are out there and circulated even in churches. The good news is not health or wealth. That's not the good news. The good news is God has made you a Christian and you're going to be healthy now. Or you're going to be wealthy now. The good news is not an easy life. The good news is not even an easier life. <laughs> the good news is not a family to call your own or your best life now. This is not the good news. The good news is God. God is the Gospel. God is the good news. Listen, the good news is not that you have been forgiven and rescued. Let me say that again, because that sounds like a soundbite gone wrong. The good news is not that you have been forgiven and rescued. That is far too general. The good news is that you have been forgiven and rescued unto God. God is the good news. Not just you've been forgiven and it's all washed and you're clean and you don't have to worry about that anymore. But that you've been forgiven for a reason. You've been forgiven and rescued unto God. You have been, what is Paul's word, reconciled. You have been brought back to God. You were alienated and estranged, but you are no longer. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might what? Bring us to God. To reconcile us. Forgiven and rescued unto God. And then what does Paul say? How did Jesus reconcile us to God? In His body of flesh by His death. So how has this reconciliation been secured? Christ came in the flesh, Paul says, as a man. Christ came as a man so that He could die. Is very simply what Paul says here. In His body of flesh by His death. A couple of verses from Hebrews that are helpful. Verse, chapter 9, verse 22 in Hebrews. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. A crucial truth. 
So God says that in, in His economy, that sin is only forgiven if there is bloodshed. It gives you an idea how big a deal sin is. In the Old Testament now, we're beginning to understand what the sacrificial system was pointing to. What the Passover process was about. What the shedding of blood on the doorpost was about. What Hebrews 9 then looks back on and says, listen, there has to be bloodshed if there's going to be any forgiveness of sin. Something, someone has to die. That's how big a deal sin is. And then later in Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14, I'm sorry, earlier, since therefore the children, you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a man. Why? That through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So how has the Christian gone from alienation and estrangement to reconciliation? By the death of Jesus Christ. In order, he goes on, to present you in verse 22, holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Been reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. How can someone, you might ask, considering our previous alienation from God, how can someone who is hostile in mind toward God and doing evil deeds, how can that person who is hostile to God, inwardly and outwardly, be reconciled to God. Well, they must be changed. They must be changed. They must be made holy and blameless. They can't be reconciled to God, hostile in mind toward Him, and doing evil deeds. Even if they're forgiven of all the past sins and hostility, there's still the problem of present Hostility and evil deeds, which you and I, I assume, still struggle with. So we need to be made holy and blameless. And what does Jesus do? He presents us holy and blameless. Ephesians 5 talks about this. Husbands, love your wives as the church, as Christ loves the church. And then he goes on to talk about how Christ loves the church. And what is Jesus going to do in verses 25 through 27 of Ephesians 5 one day? He's going to present the church to God the Father, right? Spotless, holy, blameless. And Jude says in his doxology at the end of his book that Jesus is the only one that's able to do that, who's able to make you holy and blameless. So what we're learning is, and this should just be reasonable in your mind. Sinful people before a sinless God. Unholy people before a holy God that in order to be reconciled, we must be cleansed and forgiven. Yes. And be made righteous. Reasonably. Does that make sense? Not only must you be, not only must the, the evil, 
the wickedness, right, be removed from you, okay, but you must be made righteous. You can't just go to heaven not evil. It's sort of like neutral. You have to be righteous. So two things have to happen through the death of Jesus Christ. You have to be forgiven and cleansed, but then you've got to be fit for heaven. You've got to be made righteous. The way I like to think about it is this. In order to come into the courts of God after wallowing with the pigs, you will need a bath and you'll need new clothes. Right? You're standing outside the palace okay, and the wedding feast is about to take place and you've been out with the pigs. You shouldn't be let in. You need to... No. No. You look terrible. You smell awful. Go take a bath. Get cleaned up. Get cleansed. But that's not all. You don't show up clean and naked. You need new clothes. You don't take off your muddy, dirty clothes, take a bath, and then put on the same muddy, dirty clothes, right? There's still a problem. So you do need a bath. You do need to be cleaned up and dressed up. The filth needs to be removed, but then you need proper attire. Are ways you might want to think of it. Well, listen, all that happens on the cross. All that happens on the cross. Your sin is imputed to Jesus and He dies. Imputed means that wasn't his sin, but your sin got credited to his account. It means to be imputed. Like someone you love racks up a bunch of debt and then they die. And the company sends you a bill. You say, I didn't run up that bill. You say, well, the debt was imputed to you. It's credited to your account. That's what imputation is. And so on the cross... Your sin was imputed to Jesus and He died. That was the result because of your sin. And His righteousness was imputed to you and you live. Real simply put, that's what happens on the cross. This is how the filth is removed and you're cleaned up and then you're dressed up. This is how you're cleaned and forgiven and washed of your sin, but then you're given proper attire for heaven, you're fit for heaven, the wedding feast, because this, as it's historically been called, the great exchange takes place. And the great exchange is that your sin is imputed to Jesus and He dies. And His righteousness is imputed to you and you live. What a deal. That's grace. That's the love so amazing that we sing about. Your wickedness was taken. His righteousness given. 
God takes your old clothes and gives you new clothes. So there you are. Imagine yourself standing filthy before the courts of God. This was you when you were alienated and estranged from God. Alienated, estranged from God. Hating God. Indifferent to God. Your own God. Standing filthy before God's courts. And this is not mere physical filth. Don't take the illustration too far. It is, what does Paul say? What is the filth? Hostility in mind. Doing evil deeds. On the cross, our stains and our filth and our sin was removed. Think about that. On the cross, our stains, our filth, our sin was removed, taken, and paid for by Jesus. That is the first part of this Gospel we're talking about. You have stains. You have filth. You feel filthy for the things that you've thought and filthy for the things that you've done. Like David in Psalm 51, are you painfully aware of your sin before God? Do you have things that you have done that feel like stains? I do. I have stains. You have stains around your house that you have tried everything and you cannot get them out. You've even Googled it. How am I going to get rid of this thing? And you've scrubbed and you've scrubbed and you've sprayed and you've sprayed and you've sweat over it and you just can't get that stain out. And maybe you felt that same way about yourself spiritually. Like, man, I have these stains that I just cannot get rid of. I'm just, I'm marked. Well, that's not true. I mean, it may be your true feeling about it. And it may be your true experience of it. But it's not objectively true. Your sin has been removed. No stains. No stains. Completely forgiven. And on the cross, the righteousness of Christ was displayed and then given to you. So much wickedness, so much righteousness on the cross. What a concentration, right? Of wickedness and righteousness on the cross. The most wicked thing ever done. The cross. The most wicked thing ever done. Killing God. And at the same time, the most righteous thing ever done. Dying for sinners. All of that was happening on the cross. The most wicked thing ever done, killing God, and the most righteous thing ever done, dying in the place of sinners. And what appeared to be victory for darkness was God's finest hour. That's the cross. That is God's finest hour. The glory of God displayed through the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if you've ever wondered, that is exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about when it says, 
for our sake He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the great exchange. He became sin. He took your sin. He gave you His righteousness. And that righteousness that He gives you, that is the coat on the prodigal son. And that is the new clothes that Joshua was given in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1-5. through Then He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at His right hand to accuse Him. Because that's what Satan always does. doesn't matter if it's Joshua or you or me. He's the accuser. Accusing us before God. But this is how Jesus handles it. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, talking about Joshua, a Christian, or talking about you, is this not a brand that has been plucked from the fire? You once were alienated. A brand in the fire. And you've been plucked from that fire and reconciled to God. The Lord said that about Joshua. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with, do you remember what he was clothed with? Filthy garments. Clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. The picture of forgiveness and cleansing. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, represented by the filthy clothes, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. There's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Portrayed then. And I said, let them put a clean turban on His head. So they put a clean turban on His head and clothed Him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's verse 21 and 22. That was then alienated from God. This is now reconciled to God, Christian. Isn't that good news? How then, verse 23, ought we to live as those who have been reconciled to God? And Paul's answer is, how should you live? Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. And this is his message to the Colossians that are listening to false Gospels and false teaching. Stop it! Is what Paul is saying. Don't listen to these crackpots. Remember the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And do not shift from it. This is a sermon in and of itself. You do a whole series on what Paul says here. Because the temptation is for us to get ourselves into tons of trouble as Christians because we're shifting from the Gospel. If indeed, Paul says, you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now let me say first, don't let that if scare you, Christian. That if has scared some Christians. Like verse 21 and 22 are true. If, it's what it says, indeed you continue in the faith. Well, what if I don't continue in the faith? Now this all sounds like it's riding on me. Some have thought. This sounds conditional. Well, it is. But don't let the if scare you. The if has to be there. 
Paul is not saying that you can now forget this Gospel and live however you want and be unstable and faithless and go to heaven. He's not saying that. No, the Christian is saved and being saved. It is true, a Christian must persevere to the end. But it's also true that a Christian will persevere until the end. It is true, a Christian must remain stable and steadfast. And you don't get to be unstable and unsteadfast and unfaithful and do what you want and curse God and go to heaven. That is true. You must persevere. But we've got more Bible too. It says not only a Christian must persevere, but that a Christian will persevere. In fact, if you look at the structure of the Greek, one commentator says it indicates that Paul fully expects the Colossian believers will continue in the faith. There is no doubt in the way he says this. It's like he's saying, if you stand firm in the faith, and I know you Christians will stand firm in the faith, but one of the ways that we are encouraged to stand firm in the faith is through warning. Right? The message of you're sure to persevere is not, so don't worry about it and don't really be stable and don't be steadfast because God's going to work it out apart from you and you can do whatever you want and He'll make it so that it all works out in the end. No, the message is no. Be stable and be steadfast. You need to cooperate with God here. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit here. Take your faith seriously. Do not shift from the Gospel. If you do that, you will persevere. And it will be the Lord that helps you persevere. The word biblical commentary said it this way, but continuance in faith is the test of reality. It is true that the saints will persevere to the end. If it is, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. And one of the means which the Apostle uses to ensure that his readers within the various congregations of his apostolic mission do not fall into a state of false security is to stir them up with warnings such as this. Conversion, your conversion, my conversion, is a miracle worked only by God. Perseverance is the miracle worked with God. The distinction. When you were converted, you had nothing to do with it. We call that monergism. But your sanctification and your perseverance, you have much to do with it. You are cooperating with God and with His Spirit. It is a synergism. But the real point of Paul's verse here is how do we persevere? How do we continue in the faith? How do we remain stable and steadfast? And Paul says this, do not shift from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. Remember the Gospel. If you don't know the Gospel, speaking to Christians, if you don't know the Gospel and are not able to articulate the Gospel, my question is, how are you doing it? How are you living the Christian life? How are you not I mean, how many medications are you taking? I mean, how can you not be despairing 
How are you getting out of bed in the morning? How, how do you do that if you aren't able to say the Gospel and communicate the Gospel? Because you have to, I think what Paul is saying here is you need to say the Gospel to you and preach the Gospel to you. Do not shift from the Gospel that you heard. So you heard it. You should know it. And don't shift from it. Which means you still know it. John Stott said, the cross or the Gospel is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. We need the Gospel. That's how Martin Luther put it. Martin Luther said, here I must take counsel of the Gospel. I must hearken to the Gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper place of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. To wit, that He suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The Gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the Gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. The Gospel. Do not, Paul says, shift from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. So my concluding encouragement to us and application to us in regards to this verse where Paul says, do not shift from the hope of the Gospel that you heard is threefold. Number one, I might encourage you to sing the Gospel. Number two, to speak the Gospel. And number three, to share the Gospel. You may consider those. Number one, to speak. I'm sorry, to sing the Gospel. Do you have a song? Do you have a a hymn of the Gospel? We sing lots of them. We're singing some today. Hymns and songs that summarize the truth of the Gospel. Do you have some that mean more to you than others, some that stick with you more than others, I would encourage you to sing it every day. Sing it every day. Maybe it becomes your priority when you get up in the morning. I don't know what floods your mind when you wake up in the morning, but I have to fight so hard. And if I don't have a plan the night before about what I'm going to think about when I first wake up, I will think about awful things. Other priorities that I have. So I have to tell myself the night before what I'm going to think about when I wake up. And I wake up, hopefully I think about it. And I don't always think about it still. So maybe you wake up and you sing. Maybe you sing in the car. Maybe you sing in the shower. Maybe you sing at your break at work. Whenever it is, I would encourage you to sing the Gospel at least once a day. I would encourage you to speak the Gospel at least once a day. Find a text. Maybe it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. But find a text that summarizes the Gospel. There's lots of them. Over a hundred at least. 
Find a text that summarizes the Gospel. Write it out. Put on a sticky note. Memorize it. Speak the Gospel to yourself at least once a day. And then finally, I would encourage you to share the Gospel. Share the Gospel with someone who's not a Christian who has never heard the Gospel. Share the Gospel with a Christian who needs to be reminded of the Gospel. As Luther said, beat it into their heads continually. But share the Gospel. Share the good news that while man in that pre-fall garden was the happiest he has ever been, he was not the happiest he'll ever be. Adam and Eve in the garden in that paradise, I would say were the happiest that man has ever been, but not the happiest he will ever be. No, we will find that in the paradise regained in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will walk before God again, unhindered with something that Adam and Eve did not have in the garden, and that is fresh worship inciting memories of rescue. Because of the Gospel. So how do we stand firm? How are we stable and steadfast, Paul? How do we do this? Do not shift, Paul said, from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your encouragement and Your Word today. For those of us who know You, we thank You for reminding us of our former alienation and now our reconciliation to You. God, You have been so good to us. We pray that the rest of our time this morning would be us communicating to You our great gratitude. And for those who are here today who do not know You, we pray that they'd meet You now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.